in the early parts of 2019, I just started to realize that I couldn't really focus on creating a happier, positive, longer life if I didn't address the elephant in the room, which for me was this ongoing, decades-long daily drinking habit that kept me from basically living my best life. It just kept me from, you know, doing the things that I wanted to do because three or three to four drinks in every night, you know, all I wanted to do was sit on the couch and veg out. You know, I didn't, (laughs) I mean, and eat and just not do the things that we know that are going to help you feel better and happier and again, live longer. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe and the results that we're getting Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Hi all, just wanted to give a quick update. Last night I went out with some friends for the first time in a long time alcohol free and I didn't even crave a drink, not at all. It didn't enter my mind, wasn't thinking about it, I wasn't even worried about it and I had attended Janet's uh, wonderful workshop earlier that day with the amazing Lynette, Lucy and Nick And all the information was so fresh in my mind, I felt like, oh no, I don't want that poison in my body. Are you crazy? So I hope it's not too soon to to say this, but I'm really starting to feel that my mind is changing how it views alcohol. And this is definitely a step in the right direction. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on join our tribe. Now this week, my guest is Molly Watts. Molly is a senior living specialist who believes that ageing with optimism is not only possible but can be created by cultivating the habits of a happier and longer life. Now ditching the drink can of course play a big role in healthy ageing. Growing up with an alcoholic mom, Molly has witnessed firsthand the damage that alcohol can do. And in spite of that, she's had her own difficulties with alcohol, but she's worked hard at it and now feels that she's reached a peaceful relationship with alcohol. She's a self-confessed science geek and her key to changing her own patterns was information. She's done plenty of research into the effects alcohol has on our brain and our bodies, 
which she is kindly sharing with us today. So let's have a listen to my conversation with Molly. I do live here in Portland, Oregon, and I've lived here for, gosh, well over 30 years now. And I am a mom to four boys. I call them boys. They're really young men now, but you know, there's four of them. (laughs) And uh, I am happily married and have been just really working on my life and working on my own relationship with alcohol for the past two plus, well, two plus years that I've figured it out many, many years of prior to that. We'll talk about that more. And in my daytime job, I work at a senior living community, which I love. And I get to help seniors uh, create a happier, longer life. So Molly, you describe yourself as the adult child of uh, an alcoholic. And I wondered if you talked to us a bit about your childhood and how that shaped your attitude towards alcohol. Yeah, I have a pretty long story with alcohol in my family. And it I was 13 when my mother first admitted to me that she was an alcoholic. And I've talked about this story on my own podcast about how I was, you know, it was a Saturday morning and I was very going to catch her, you know, I was going to really nail her to the wall because she was at the ironing board and she had a glass of vodka on the rocks designed to look like water, you know, that I wasn't supposed to recognize it. And so I very triumphantly asked her and was going to catch her and said, you know, are you an alcoholic? And I remember her answering me and she did say, yes, she thought she was, or yes, she was, but I really didn't hear. I just, I I really thought that by her admitting it to me (laughs) that it would fix it, you know, that it would go away as as a, as a 13 year old, that was my mindset. If I caught her and she knew that I knew, then she would stop. And of course, uh, and by that time, her drinking had been going on for years. Uh, Of course, that's not the moral of the story. She did not stop drinking. And she, in fact, went to rehab four different times throughout my life. Not the first time, not until after I had left for college. Um, And the last time she went to uh, rehab, she was 77 years old. I went to an inpatient or in-person patient treatment center uh, for nine months, considered to be for the reluctant to recover. (laughs) and at 77, which is almost unheard of, as you know. I mean, it's most people, A, don't live that long. Second, it's just not something that we're prepared to deal with is people that are older with an addiction issue. Um, And she drank three weeks after. So, uh, and after nine months. So there was, at that point, it was clear that she was no longer physically addicted to alcohol at nine months. Um, But the the psychological dependence had never been addressed. And so, and she ultimately ended up dying of an alcoholic binge, just short of her 81st birthday. So to say that I was a child, you know, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I I always say also, I've I've become an adult of an alcoholic, you know, I, I, it really has been a, a major part of my life, and became a major part of, of really, Uh, the story that developed for me in my own brain and how I began to, which became to me, I say it's kind of an oxymoronic habit because I had tried for so many years to solve my mother's alcohol problem, studied it, um, wanted to understand it, wanted to fix it, and then developed my own alcohol use issues, you know, which really 
sort of was very illogical to me, but it in, in fact happened. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating, isn't it? So you you certainly grew up with a great caution towards alcohol. You were very very conscious of it because most oh, you know yeah. most people they don't really think about alcohol at the age of thirteen or fourteen, do they? So you were always very aware of the fact that um, it could become a problem. Oh yeah, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I I mean yes, and also. It, it shaped my my notions of what an alcoholic was, what alcoholism looked like, how it, you know, and and really then presented what it was to me. And also just some some background learning as far as when we drink, how we drink, you know, all of that stories are something that adult children of alcoholics learn at an early age when we're not really aware that we're learning it. Yeah, yeah. And do you believe that alcoholism is a disease? I know some people do. Yeah, you know, I don't believe that alcoholism is a disease. I I did believe that alcoholism was a disease when I was growing up because of course it made it a lot easier I think to stomach if I if I believed that my mom was sick and if something was happening to her as opposed to what I now believe is really more of a psychological dependence that develops. And then for most people, there are very few people that have, um, there, there, there is some physical uh, aspect to how we process or metabolize alcohol. And there can be a, some people ha- lack some, uh, some uh, chemicals in the body that basically help us metabolize alcohol that could then lead to more, uh, a quicker substance abuse situation for them. But I think about it like this. I mean, if alcoholism is is a disease, then why isn't smoking a disease? Then why isn't, you know, why isn't binge eating a disease? These are things that, you know, people do. And what I believe about alcohol is that people more than often than not turn to it uh, initially uh, for as a mood, either enhancer, mood changer, something that they want to change how they're feeling, they want to increase their fun, they want to decrease their negative emotions. And they use it in that respect. First, their brain gets trained to anticipate that. And then it becomes a habit that eventually at and if treated long enough, (laughs) will become and, and done enough will become a physical dependence. And once we cross the line of physical dependence, of course, it's it's a different story. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, I, I absolutely share your view there about the disease thing, because uh, I've had breast cancer probably as a result of my decades of heavy drinking, but I've had breast cancer and I've had an alcohol problem. Cancer is a disease in my right. my view, but you know the way I felt about my cancer was completely different about the way I felt about my alcohol de- dependence because I always knew that I had the power to change it. It was a matter of me doing the work, you know, and and changing my my thought patterns and my limiting beliefs around it. So right. uh, I I agree with you about the disease, and I, I think that stops people from from tackling it because well, it, yeah, it is and possible. That's- yeah, that's the biggest reason that I disagree with it so vehemently is because if we put it off into a corner and we say alcoholism is a disease, then we have to wait until we catch it, 
right? Until we address it. And that's just absolute nonsense. For most people, they should be, we should be looking at it. And that's for me, I would have never, I didn't address my drinking for a very long time, decades, much like, you know, for decades, because in my mind, I was not an alcoholic. I was not an alcoholic like my mom. I did not you know, I didn't black out. I didn't have, I was not a big binge drinker. I was not somebody that had physical withdrawal symptoms because of drinking way too much on a regular basis. So for me, there was no impetus because I hadn't hit some sort of rock bottom or I wasn't in my mind, an alcoholic never would have looked at (laughs) uh, options for recovery, never would have cross the threshold of an AA meeting, none of that, because it didn't apply to me. And therefore, I kept stuck in a very long term, regular drinking habit where I was drinking far more than the the what what is recommended here in the US for either moderate or low risk drinking, I was drinking well above those thresholds. And as to your point, a known carcinogen, right? Drinking at a point that was definitively raising my risk for developing cancer and, and all the other physical uh, problems that can become from from uh, increased alcohol use. Absolutely. Um, Myself as well, when I was in my um, heavy drinking phase, I would sometimes look at the homeless man on the the park in with his you know bottle of spirits in his brown paper bag and I would think okay so that's what an alcohol looks alcoholic right. looks like <laughs> I'm right. not like that right not me so I don't have to worry because you know that's not me yeah and there's millions and millions of people like that you know they almost alcoholic just people that are drinking yeah you know, a bottle of wine a day and when I was at that level, and I would I would laugh with my friends sometimes and say, "Oh, I'm sure I'm an alcoholic," you know, and they'd all say, "Oh, come on, don't be no, silly," yeah. you know. Right, it's we're just all a bottle. Alcoholics, <laughs> right, ha, ha, ha. right, right, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and we're I'm I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I mean, this is also fueled by the fact that our society and culture is so alcohol centric, and everything that we learn about alcohol. We, we learn it in two ways. First of all, it's sexy, glamorous, you know, wonderful, aphrodisiac, makes you, you know, the life of the party. So if you, you can, if you're lucky enough to be able to, to enjoy it, right, and handle it, that's wonderful. Then we've got the other side, which is your, if you can't handle it, you're, uh, you know, you're broken, sick, um, you know, just the, the guy on the, on the street bench, right? And we don't really figure out, we don't talk about it in a scientific way very way, very much at all. And we don't really address it from a behavioral standpoint or as something, as a, a very poor coping strategy, which most people use it as. Exactly. So talk to us about when you decided that you were going to make a change, because in spite of your, your mom and the ironing board and all that, <laughs> yeah, you, still, right? you still went on to, to drink rather more than you should. When did you decide, I've got to do something yeah. about this? You know, I, I don't know that it, there was ever just this moment that I really realized, you know, I didn't ever hit, like I said, I never hit some, some point where I really said, I really got to do something about this. It was just this nagging, total, always ever present 
thought in the back of my head, this worry, this anxiety that I typically just that I had grown to accept as a part of my life as just who I was. I was an adult child of an alcoholic who knew the 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 downsides of drinking, but could not change my drinking behavior, and was destined to just live in this state of worry and anxiety, wondering if I was ever going to become an alcoholic like my mother. And, but still feeling like I just wasn't strong enough or couldn't deal with life without my regular drinking. And I was drinking, you know, three, four standard drinks per night, which is way beyond the, the limits of, of a healthy relationship. And more importantly, as mentioned, I was doing it in a way that was typically to try to buffer out all the negative emotions of my day, stress, any type of depression, anything, and anytime any crisis or not crisis, but you know, anytime that was a, a moment of overwhelm in my life, I immediately turned to drinking more, you know, and that's it, it, again. So I had started learning. I, I had another passion project that I had worked on for a few years, which, you know, was before my new podcast right now, I had a podcast previous to that, which focused on the positive aspects of aging, which I witnessed in my father. And I really wanted to avoid, wanted to age like my dad, avoid aging like my mom. And I'd studied all this habit stuff. And I sort of wanted to ignore <laughs> this little negative thing that was always in the background of my life. And in the early parts of 2019, I just started to realize that I couldn't really focus on creating a happier, positive, longer life if I didn't address the elephant in the room, which for me was this ongoing decades long daily drinking habit that kept me from basically living my best life. It just kept me from, you know, doing the things that I wanted to do because Three or three to four drinks in every night, you know, all I wanted to do was sit on the couch and veg out. You know, I didn't, <laughs> I mean, and eat and just not do the things that we know that are going to help you feel better and happier and again, live longer. So that's how kind of, it, it, like I said, it was more just a, like a realization that I couldn't keep trying to do this positive stuff if I wasn't going to look at this negative stuff. And I mean, this one yeah. negative habit. And so, yeah, well, good for you. I think so many of us for decades have this voice, don't we? We know that we've got to do something about our drinking, but yeah. we just don't know how, you know, we yeah. don't know where to start. And I think you started with education, really, didn't you? Yeah. Because you're a self-confessed science nerd. <laughs> and I, I think that's that's a great way to tackle it because uh, we have workshops, you know, and I, I give people a toolbox. And one of the, um, the tools is education, you know, and research. I say to people, 
pretend you're doing a PhD on alcohol, you know, just research it. Because the more you read about this stuff, the more you think, I don't want that in my body. Right. So tell tell us what you found. Tell us about the difference between psychological and physical, because that's that's very interesting. I heard on one of your podcasts that, in fact, not many of us are physically dependent. Yeah. So talk to us more about that. So the statistics are are actually less than 10% of drinkers and people that are even drinking to excess and drinking in um, what would be classified by the National Institute of Alcoholism and Addiction here in the U.S. as alcohol use disorder, people that are further on that spectrum um, are still uh, not physically addicted. (laughs) And I think that people think they're physically dependent before they actually are. And they use that as a reason to not look at their drinking Um, First, most people develop a psychological dependence on alcohol long before they ever develop that physical or if they ever develop that physical dependence. There are many, many people like me that were drinking that are drinking more than recommended levels, more than could be typically, you know, considered low risk and are doing it because they have developed a habit of it, they have developed a psychological dependence on it, they believe that they need alcohol to change how they are feeling. And yes, the science is so compelling. And I am a self-confessed science nerd. And I share a lot of science on my podcast, because I agree with you completely. I say it's a tool that's I it's in my toolbox, too. It's really it was really pivotal for me in learning all the science behind alcohol to really understand there's a lot of confusing messages we get. You know, we get told that drinking red wine's good for our, our hearts, right? I mean, Lord, there's so many people that start drinking red wine because they they believe they're doing something good for themselves. And it's just simply not true. The science does not support that. And once you start learning all the science, you really whether or not you're you're completely alcohol free which is absolutely without question the healthiest and safest choice for everyone whether or not you are 100% alcohol free or if you are going to include alcohol in your life you have to realize that to include alcohol in your life you're going to be doing it in a very very minimal way you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community Just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Yeah, yeah. And and talking of the science, Molly, uh, tell us what happens when we start drinking alcohol in our brains. (sighs) I I love that uh, description that you did in your podcast once. Well, so basically there are you know, billions of neurotransmitters and the neurochemistry and neuroscience is so interesting to me. And I know it's not for everybody, but for me, it really is. Basically, you've got a lot of different neurotransmitters going on, and I'm not going to go into all of them and all the different labels, but think of it this way. There are two main neurotransmitters that basically run everything in our brain. They are basically responsible for turning the brain on and turning the brain off. And alcohol affects both of those. In addition, alcohol affects another endorphin, dopamine, which is known to be the chemical in our bodies that makes us feel good, that makes us search out further reward. So we've got this chemical that comes into the brain, and it basically both affects the the 
neurotransmitter that turns our brains off and it affects our trans the neurotransmitter that turns our brains on. It increases the neurotransmitter that turns our brains off. So that's where that, you know, the depressant action is happening, right? And it it blocks the uh, neurotransmitter that turns our brains on. So again, so both of those combined, it's like, oh, this, you, it initially at a very low dose, that euphoric kind of relaxed feeling is, is prevalent in the brain. And you're, it's like, oh, okay, this is great, right? Which is why and when dopamine turns on, you're like, oh, hey, okay, we like this. This is good. That's why people continue to look for it. But the problem is, <laughs> the more and more we drink, and at a very, and really, the, the threshold is very low, way below the the limits for drunk driving is when the negative impacts of alcohol begin to take on in the brain. But the bottom line is then we've got this brain that's chemically altered, no longer finding homeostasis where it would normally, those the GABA and the glutamate that are typically um, just this very wonderful system that's already uh, working in tandem together, always in the brain, it's now altered. And so as alcohol dissipates from the brain, that chemical that is seeking to turn the brain on, we've the brain has already fired out a lot of signals saying, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> we're not we don't have our brain turned on because of it's been blocked. And so you're going to get this rebound effect of anxiety and stress after the fact. And that happens why people have turned termed it anxiety. And that's really actually a chemical reaction in the brain that's happening. And it can happen with as little as one drink. Not you won't notice that impact as much, but the more you drink, the higher that is, which is why then people have that increased sensitivity, that increased irritability, that increased anxiety after the fact. And what do they want to do? They want to drink to put it back down again. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fascinating. I remember in my drinking days, I'd have one glass, two glass of wine, and you know, my brain would be saying, "Oh, this is nice. Let's carry on. Let's yeah. let's feed this buzz." But it doesn't happen, does it? Because you no. bum it, you know. Yeah. Sometimes I would end up in floods of tears after a night of drinking, and, and I had no idea why because <laughs> right. I had no reason to cry. Well, I but think... it's just it's such an example of how it pulls you down, doesn't it? And I think it's really something you just said right there about how. At some night you'd be, you know, one night you'd be thrown into tears, the other nights you wouldn't, right? One of the things I talk about on the podcast a lot is that basically every time you drink, it's like your own private Petri dish. You really, everything changes in your body. It's always dynamic. It depends on your age. It depends on your weight. It depends on your gender. It depends on how much sleep you've had. It depends on how much you've eaten. It depends on the temperature outside. So all of these things come together every single time you drink. Then there's, of course, once you've been drinking after a while, you can build up tolerance and that's going to impact it as well. So you really have to pay attention because it is not, it, it, what you did two weeks ago could be completely different today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my tolerance was all over the place. Sometimes I could drink two bottles of wine and feel nothing. Another day I could drink just one glass and start to feel a bit buzzy. Yeah, yeah that was, and that's and that's that was, yeah, that's the the unique. That's one of the reasons that alcohol is so dangerous for yeah. people is because it is so individual. And so again, going back to that, that's why the safest, absolute safest level for anyone is zero. 
and there is no scientific benefit. There is no science that proves that adding alcohol to your life adds it for the for increased physical be- health benefit is is pure nonsense. There's there's no science to back that up. Yeah, yeah. So when I, when I'm thinking about alcoholism and when I talk about it, sometimes I uh, I think of a spectrum. You know, at one end you've got the non-drinker, the other end you've got that gentleman in the park we talked right. about, and in the middle those two extremes, there's millions of people, and obviously some of us are edging towards that uh, alcoholic mm-hmm. end, and we we talk about almost alcoholics. Although, like you, I don't like the term alcoholic. You know, I don't like I refuse to label myself anything. <laughs> So uh, I just wondered if you'd educate us a little bit about this uh, DSM and the alcohol use disorder, because that, from my understanding, that develop that concentrates more on a person's relationship with alcohol rather than the amount of alcohol they're drinking. Could you explain that a little bit? What kind of criteria does it look at? Yeah, it absolutely, you're absolutely spot on there. It does not talk about a, a quantity of drinking at all. It's sheerly, um, well, there's 11 different, uh, they call them symptoms. I don't really know. I mean, it's. I would say they're characteristics or behaviors. Again, symptoms kind of implies disease, which I don't really agree with. So I would say, but, and, and because they're not really, um, you know, you're not like taking your temperature. It's it's a characteristic or a behavior that that's prevalent in alcohol use disorder. So the DSM, um, uh, it's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, something. I mean, there's a big, fan, long name for it. But psychologists basically have been working to understand substance use disorders for, for decades, right? And the DSM has evolved over time. And the DSM-5 is the most recent edition. And in the DSM-5, which talk about alcohol use disorder, just as you describe, in, in, as a spectrum, right? So you can go from mild to moderate to severe. And it's basically looking at your past year and these 11 different uh, characteristics or behaviors, or in in one case, it's a physical, they ask about a physical symptom, whether or not you've experienced physical withdrawal symptoms, tremors, shakiness, nausea, that kind of thing. So if you have two to three of these symptoms, then you are classified as having a mild alcohol use disorder. So if you have four to five, you are uh, classified as having moderate alcohol use disorder. And if you are at six or more symptoms, then you have severe alcohol use disorder. And basically, it's just a way of looking at how alcohol is impacting your life, how it's impacting your relationships, how it's impacting your job, um, and how you're, you know, and if it's impacting in too many areas, then you would be considered to be further down that that use disorder. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Okay, that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I'll um, put a, a link to it in the show yeah. notes yeah, because so. I did have a look at it, and you know, some people listening to this might like to to answer some of the questions. Yeah, they're pretty. I think I've linked it before in my show notes, and there's a there's a self diagnostic tool really to let you help you determine whether or not you have alcohol use disorder. I think that for me, and I think that this message I would love to share is if you're worried about your alcohol use, if you, if it causes you any type of, if you know, mental anxiety, if you think about it too much, if you're concerned about it, if it's ever present in your life, then 
don't worry about whether or not you have an alcohol use disorder. Worry about changing your relationship with alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. I think once that little voice starts in the head, oh, <laughs> I wonder if I should do something about this. It's a pretty clear sign, isn't it? But many of us manage to ignore that voice for so long. Because, of course, we have our subconscious saying, uh, oh, but, you know, yeah. what about the parties and <laughs> what about relaxing? How will I cope? So we end up with this internal struggle, which is very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I had to work out how to do it before I was able to tackle it. And, and I did it really through community, through finding other people, you know, like me that were trying to change their relationship. I went to AA, but that didn't work because... Uh, Everyone else that seemed a bit further down the line than me, you know, mm -hmm. they were talking about their morning drinking. And I was thinking, well, I don't do that. So mm -hmm. I can't be an alcoholic, you know. So we were back to that again. Mm -hmm. I had to find really people like me that were downing a bottle of wine every evening and knew that they wanted to make a change. Yeah. So that that was so you, you were education. I was finding people like me. We, we all find our own way, don't we, if, if we really have the motivation. Yeah. So let's talk about the normalization of alcohol in our society. There's so much to say, isn't there? Oh. Um, you know, the, the fact that uh, we're considered odd if we don't drink. So a lot of the people that I work with, you know, they, they say, oh, you know, what am I going to say to people as if it's a, a shameful thing that they have to confess? And yep. it's a big thing for people. And I think it... Uh, keeps a lot of people trapped, doesn't it, for, oh, for years because they don't want to be the odd one out. Absolutely. And I know, you know, I know you and I both have talked to and know Claire Pooley and one of her, the things in her TED talk she said so brilliantly is, you know, if you don't smoke, no one, no one asks you, you know, why aren't you not smoking? I mean, they, they like, you know, pat you on the back and they say, congratulations, well done, because of course, everyone associates smoking as a terrible, you know, as a, as a known way to cause cancer and, and increase your chance of death, right? But the, it, the same holds true for alcohol. And yet we are not patted on the back. We are looked at like, oh, you know, and you have to, people do get into their minds that they have to, to have a reason for not drinking or they have to have as opposed to where the simpler answer would just be to go ahead and drink. And um, yeah, alcohol is the, the way that the alcohol industry has glorified drinking and has made it something that is just second nature to people is really something, you know, I, um, for, for me and what I talk about with my audience all the time, I'm just constantly asking them to question everything yeah. that they see, everything that they're told, everything, you know, every meme that pops up that makes alcohol seem like a funny, light subject because the bottom line is that it doesn't have to be dour but it does it is serious right and it has to be something that we take very seriously yeah yeah and I, I think once we can see through all the the bs of the marketing it loses its power doesn't oh, it oh for sure because we do that in our community now you know we have a whatsapp group and we chat away all day on that and people will find something and they'll go, oh, have you seen this? And we, we had one this morning and it comes from the States, actually. And this lady had found a, a reference to um, 
some organizer, some center where you went for your vaccinations because they were trying to persuade more people to get vaccinated. And it said, have a glass of wine with your vaccination. I believe that there was, I want to say that I remember or hearing recently that one of the major um, breweries here in the United States was offering a free beer for people that would go and get vaccinated. So you know, (laughs) what does that say about what we're, how we believe and how we treat it. And instead of treating it like the known chemical and toxin that it is and uh, a drug, you know, it's a drug, there's no two ways about it. And we need to treat it as such. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a drug that in fact kills far more people than all the hard drugs put together. Right. I think it's three million people globally yeah. every year die from alcohol-related diseases. Yeah. But we we don't hear about this as, as much as we should. No. Anyway, you and I are doing our bits. Yeah, right. To try, and, exactly. try and get it all out there. And there's a lot of people now, I think, that are are trying trying to uh, get the word out a little bit more. I mean, in the UK where I'm from and South Africa where I live, the wine industries have certainly done a, a brilliant job at targeting women so that most women believe that their life wouldn't be complete if they, they weren't drinking wine now and again. And is it like that in the, the US? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I live in a I live in wine country. I live in a beautiful wine region here. And um, so there is no shortage of messaging. I'm also, funnily enough, in wine country. <laughs> and we have we have many wine farms and, and I've been to them since I've been sober. And as you say, you know, it's the company and it's the beautiful scenery. And I get a lot of people that say to me, but you know, what? what's the point of a beautiful sunset if I can't have a glass of wine with it? And it, it does take um, a while and it takes um, some, you know, work to to uncouple these things. You know, you don't have to have a glass of wine with a steak. You don't have to drink a glass of white while you're looking at the sunset. Well, it's just so entrenched, isn't it? And it's it's all down to our neural pathways. I think. Absolutely. And I don't, I do not for a second tell people that this happened overnight for me. This was a two plus year process for me, meeting myself where I was at originally. But as you say, one of the things that I talk about a lot is what I call the behavior map and the results cycle. And I talk a lot about it. it's kind of it's it's along the lines of cognitive behavioral therapy, but really understanding how to manage my mind, manage my emotions, and understood finally that I could handle my emotions and that I could direct my brain and help myself feel better. And that's the thing. Alcohol is just a temporary bandage. It, it you know, it, it buffers away the negative emotions. But then when I when you're done drinking it, they typically just come back in spades, right? And you haven't really addressed the underlying stress or the underlying problem. And for me, learning how to do that was really critical for me changing that habit, because I realized that Alcohol didn't actually help me unwind. Alcohol actually increased anxiety on the on the back end, as we talked about with those neurotransmitters, and realizing that I could relax my brain by changing how I was thinking was really, you know, pivotal for me. Yeah, yeah. All it does is numb us and yeah. delay the the issue. Doesn't right? Doesn't yeah. doesn't treat doesn't solve anything. 
Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. So how do you see the future, Molly? I was reading something the other day uh, that said that 25% of young people in the UK don't actually drink alcohol. And my son, uh, he's in his um, 30s now, and he's never been much of a drinker. I probably put him off for life. But, uh, you know, he's he, he's not really that interested yeah. in alcohol. And, and I, I've met a lot of young people that are like that these days. I just do. do you I'm see excited. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. I'm excited about it. Mm. There are so many uh, great stories and people talking about um, being sober curious and non-alcoholic branding and very strong companies that just continue to grow and grow and grow here in the United States as far as offering non-alcoholic drinks. There's non-alcoholic bars opening up, you know, that which I think is awesome. I mean, I think it's just incredible. And I can't wait to see because really, I do wonder if the you know, if alcohol is going to come along the same path, eventually in 20 years, will it be like smoking was, you know, will we realize that it's, you know, will we know it for all of the known health risks that it causes? And will we be able to look back on those days like, oh, wow, we, we, you know, because we look back on the 50s and we look, oh, my goodness, people smoked like they were, you know, oh, my gosh. Are we going to look back now and say, oh, my gosh, people drank like, oh, what were they thinking? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, well, I hope so. And yeah, I think this alcohol free beverage uh, industry is, is a very good sign. I gave up drinking six years ago and there was nothing. Well, not here in South Africa anyway. Mm-hmm. I either had to have a, a Coke or a glass of water. And that made me even more grumpy you know, when I was socialising. <laughs> and the fact that I wanted a, a glass of wine at six o'clock, I knew I couldn't have wine. But these days, you know, you can have alcohol free wine. And I think I was never a beer drinker. But these days I, I drink quite a lot of alcohol free beer because I, I think it, it tastes, you know, quite really good, nice. Isn't better, it? Yeah. better than the wines yeah and I, I know in the states you've got a uh bars haven't you where they have uh, alcohol-free beer on on draft yeah. lots of different varieties i mean that's brilliant yeah. i hope it comes here and i think what we have got here in sorry in what we have got here in south africa is um an online uh shop which is uh, devoted just to alcohol-free choices and they've got uh, more than 150 choices and it's brilliant you know there's so many things coming out yeah. all the time i think the uk is the place that's really leading the way with i mean i at least from what i've gathered just from people that I've talked to in groups and stuff there it seems to be like it seems to me anyways that the UK has a better market for some of the or has been more progressive in finding alcohol free substitutes especially for wine um, but I know here in the US I have no shortage of alcohol free options and they they are selling it right in the grocery stores and we do have online companies as well and there are some uh, what's funny about that is you know talk about the I as I said that that cognitive behavioral therapy, the thoughts that I used to have, I used to really truly believe that I 
didn't like the taste of non-alcoholic beer. So I told myself for a long time that I just simply, you know, liked beer too much to give it up. And now I look back on that and think, well, that's really odd because I actually really do like the taste of non-alcoholic beer. So it's, you know, it's just, it's so much of it is how we, we manage our brains and how we manage our minds. And, um, but yeah, I absolutely think that the non-alcoholic world is coming. And I hope that in, you know, a very short amount of time, I don't know, I won't put a time limit on it, but I hope that there's a time when it's, it's, there's, the norm is the reverse, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's socially acceptable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To to have an alcohol-free drink rather than real yeah. thing yeah and the fact that a lot of uh, the liquor industries and the, the brewery they know a change is coming and they've spent millions on research and now they're they're producing these products so uh, anheuser-busch i mean budweiser zero is my favorite yeah. non-alcoholic uh beer of choice and it's uh it's becoming more and more readily available here so and obviously yeah. if, if anheuser-busch is deciding to get behind the program there must be something to it right largest beer distributor in the world (laughs) absolutely okay well perhaps we should end on that rather hopeful note molly it's it's been great talking to you and very educational i I shall carry on listening to your (laughs) podcast which i love i love the title actually breaking the bottle and the way you've got that sound i always imagine (laughs) you sitting there going smash yeah (laughs) i do i i appreciate that so much well i janet i just am thrilled that you reached out and i would love to have anyone that wants to come listen please do i hope that I can help some people that, uh, especially like people like me, that maybe were children of alcoholics uh, or, or daily habit drinkers, people that, that really believed that or really believe that they cannot give up their daily habit. Uh, because I, I definitely was like that for a long time, too. So there you heard me talking to Molly Watts. Let's pick out a few highlights from that conversation. Molly was always aware that alcohol could become a problem for her because she grew up with an alcoholic parent. But in spite of that, she developed a difficult relationship with alcohol herself. She never hit rock bottom. Her pattern was more about drinking three or four glasses of wine on the sofa every evening. But she eventually realised that this habit was draining her energy and her motivation to do anything more interesting than eating snacks and watching TV every night. Like many of us, she had a constant nagging voice in her head which she tried to ignore, a voice that was making her wonder if she was following in her mom's footsteps. She realised that she was drinking as a buffer to her emotions and her feelings of stress and overwhelm and Molly eventually decided that her drinking habit was in conflict with her passion project, which was all about healthy and positive ageing. It was the elephant in the room, as she puts it. She was suffering from cognitive dissonance. Now, for Molly, the key to change was education. A self-confessed science geek, she looked into the science, And these days, she's busy helping others understand via her weekly podcast and her new book, both called Breaking the Bottle. Molly talked me through what happens in our brains when we have a drink and why we end up with anxiety. She emphasised that whatever the media may tell us, red wine is definitely not good for our health. 
And in fact, if we really want to be healthy, we shouldn't drink at all. There are absolutely no health benefits to alcohol. One really interesting fact that I wasn't aware of was that every time we drink, it will have a slightly different effect depending on when we last ate, when we slept, etc. As Molly cleverly put it, we are acting as our own Petri dish every time we drink. Now that made a lot of sense for me because towards the end of my long drinking career, I could drink two bottles of wine and feel nothing at all. And then another day I could drink just a glass and feel quite buzzy. And another interesting thing I learnt from Molly was that less than 10% of people who are drinking too much are physically addicted. The psychological dependence develops long before the physical addiction sets in. And in fact, Molly's mum went to rehab four times and her last stay was at the age of 77. She was in rehab for nine months, which means that when she came out, there was no way she could be still physically addicted. But however, the psychological dependence had not been addressed and she was drinking again after just three weeks, eventually dying of an alcoholic binge at the age of 80. Molly taught me through the DSM, which is a self-diagnostic tool, a way of looking at your relationship with alcohol and categorising it as mild, moderate or severe. But we both agreed that whatever the DSM is saying about your relationship with alcohol, if you are worried about it, then you should make some changes. And the easiest and gentlest way to make a start on your journey is to become sober curious. As a sober curious person, you'll want to learn as much as you can about this toxin called alcohol. And I guarantee that the more you learn about it, the less you will want to drink it. Listen to Molly's podcast, Breaking the Bottle, and read her book, which is also called Breaking the Bottle Legacy. And joining Tribe Sober is a great way to start your sober curious journey. New members are added to our 30-day alcohol-free challenge, and that's a way of increasing your awareness of your dependence on alcohol. The challenge comes with online and community support. And if you can easily get through a month without alcohol, then you obviously don't have a problem. But if you can't, then you need to make some changes. And that's when we get you started on our 7 Steps to Sobriety programme. Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. For an affordable monthly subscription, you can learn how to ditch the drink and thrive in your alcohol-free life. So that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and I'll see you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.